jump into it. As you can tell, you've got a couple pages of notes tonight. And I want to just continue to encourage you that if you're just getting to joining us in this, uh, to go ahead online and grab yourself uh, those videos that you can watch. It'll catch you up to where we are now. It's very important. Last week was a key moment to getting to understand how we're doing and where we're going as we saw in the first vision, Christ in the churches. So we're we're going to go ahead and get started, and there's, we're going to go ahead, and it's important. We cover the entire chapter. Uh, well, actually, there's supposed to be two chapters tonight, but I don't think we'll have time to get to the next part. But after these things I saw, and behold, a door opened in heaven, and the first voice that I heard, a voice as of a trumpet speaking to me, with me, one saying, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must come to pass hereafter. Straightway I was in the Spirit, and behold, there was a throne set in heaven, and one sitting upon the throne, and he, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper stone and a sardius. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald to look upon. And round about the throne were four and twenty thrones. And upon the thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting, arrayed in white garments, and on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and voices and thunders. And there was seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. I almost said six. Well, you know, it's there, so... And before the throne, as it were, a sea of glass like a crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes, before and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, and the third creature was had a face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, having each one of them six wings, are full of eyes, round about and within, and they have no rest day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures, and, and I'm sorry, when the living creatures shall give glory and honor and thanks to him that sitteth on the throne, to him that liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders shall fall down before him that sitteth on the throne, shall worship him that liveth forever and ever, and shall cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, O Lord and our God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they, because of thy will they were and were created. And thus for brought Mar Mike and Darcy into the sanctuary and seated them in the front. There's some things you just cannot resist. Big chapter, a lot of information, a lot of things to get to to explain it and to be able to bring it into, ah, that's what that means kind of thing. Remember what we're doing here is we're taking a historical look at the book of Revelations. That's key and important to understand. So as we take a historical look, we're looking at what they understood when they received the letter. These real 
seven churches, when John writes to them and he shares this stuff, what's going through their heads? What are they understanding? We're going to stop here at, at chapter 4. We'll, we'll proceed to chapter 5 if we get to it. Uh, I, I doubt it. I, take this, I, I, want, I don't want to take this fast. I want to take it at a pace that you're going to grab as much as you possibly can in the setting. I will also say it's really important that you do take good notes. And I say that because we will make these notes available with answers. But the key thing is, if you just listen to this, you're going to forget 80% of it. And that's where we, we get into a Samaritan theology, I call it. <laughs> kind of wacky. But then again, you probably think that about me, but that's okay. Not a problem. I, I want us to understand the great importance of chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation as we get into this next vision. We'll consider this the second vision. And, and you may, uh, you know, Remember that last time we dealt again with the first vision, which was what? The book in the, it, was, it was Christ in the middle of the churches. Now we deal with the second vision, and that, in a very real sense, this is the pivotal vision for the entire book as we follow through with this. If I can understand chapters 4 and 5, basically, I can tell you, you've got the book. It is in those two chapters that if we don't understand certain elements, we're going to find them cropping up all the way through this book. And as a result, there's going to be a problem there because we don't get it. So we will deal with this vision. And first of all, in, in, in this you know first vision of or the first part of the first vision that we'll see in chapters four and five, we're going to, they're pivotal, okay? And, and just make sure you really read through the two chapters here because then we're going to move on to what is called the six seals and 144,000. And there's no sense getting into that stuff if we don't understand this stuff. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it's one plus one equals three. And, and I really, I wonder, as we read this tonight, I wonder you know, what you saw as we read the chapter. To understand the Bible, you should always, always be listening to echoes, echoes, quotes. Jesus would quote the scriptures. Paul, Peter, Timothy, all of those guys would quote. And, and I, I say that because the Bible is one book and not a lot of books all stuck together. It's just one book. It is one book, and, and all these others, these, these divisions, they flow together. In the book of Revelation, the key to the book is everywhere else in the Bible. And I, I say that because if I want to know the code for this book, then I look, I look in other parts of the Scripture for it. Now, Again, I wonder if you really heard anything as we read chapter 4. So let me get into this. If, if, if you remember when Moses went up on the mount in Exodus chapter 19 and he received the law of God, right? He also received a pattern 
for what we know as the tabernacle. And he goes on to, that, to the mountain and he receives a pattern there. And, and notice it stated that he was to make the tabernacle according to the pattern that he saw on the mount. So what I want you to do is get the picture. Moses goes up a mountain. He goes into the presence of God. Moses goes up a mountain. He goes into the presence of God. In fact, he, he, was, he was summoned into that presence. How? By a trumpet. By a trumpet sound. If, if you remember the scripture, and you can go back and read it as your leisure because we'll have a lot of other stuff we've got to cover anyways. But as he goes into that living presence of God on the mountain, he sees something. We're talking about Moses here. God sends him then back down the mountain to make a model of what he saw. And we call that model what? The tabernacle. Do you, do you remember what the tabernacle looked like? Well, in case you did forget, I made sure I included pictures in your notes tonight. So I want to start where God starts. That, let's get into that, at, which is at the center of the tabernacle. Now, if, if, if you are to take this room and picture it like we have up on the screen of a tabernacle, and if we put this part where I'm standing sort of in the middle of the tabernacle, then if you look at the far end there on your left, you will see the Ark of the Covenant in the back in a place called the Holy of Holies. That box, as you remember, was made of acacia wood, the Ten Commandments, the Law of God, the box on, it, on its top had a slab of gold, and it was called the what? The throne of God. Do you remember that? Okay. And, and, and I say that because it was the throne of the God of Israel. At the end of the slab of solid gold, there came two strange creatures that were called what? Thank you. Good. Cherubim. And there... In the center, on top of the gold slab, between the cherubim, there was what? The uncreated light. The Shekinah glory. It was known as what? The presence of God. It was the king of Israel. Now, I wish I could come up with a better picture than what I got, but if you search the internet, you can't find nothing that looks any better. I'm sorry. So, excuse me for what it looks like, but immediately in front of the ark, that ark, there was a very thick curtain, okay? And, and, and on that curtain, there was inscribed pictures of what? Cherubim. All, you know, in, embroidered throughout that curtain were all these pictures of, of cherubim. The cherubim was around the throne of God, and they were on the curtain in front. Now, the curtain was a separating curtain. You could not get into the presence of God. You were separated from it by what? The veil, the curtain. Now, immediately in front of the veil, and therefore almost up against the ark, that's right in front of it there, but separated, there was, you'll see it here, a golden altar, okay? And that's number, number well, get myself behind here. Uh, the, the golden, the altar, it's called the altar of incense. It's number five on the diagram below. You can see that. And, and, and so the, the it separated. 
I mean, there was the, the, the golden altar was where the Israelite, in the person of his priest, okay, priest is the representative, but the Israelite saw himself in the priest, as the priest represented, the priest would worship God. Now, ascending at the golden altar, there was what you would know as an everlasting song of praise and worship right in front of the throne. That's what that altar is all about. I hope you're getting the picture here. Okay. Over on the other side, there would be, and you can see it, it's sort of uh, tossed to the side there. and it's Well, it's in your picture anyway. It's a seven golden lampstand. And, and, and you have, on the one side, you have, well, let's, let's kick it back. I'm going to skip over my notes if I'm not careful. There's a table where, well, no. You got candles on the one side, bread on the other side. <laughs> it, it, well, anyways, what you would have is that it would be on the right hand, if you're looking at the ark there, it would be on the right-hand side of the golden altar. On the left-hand side is where the table, where there was 12 loaves of bread on the table. Each one stands for what? 12 tribes of Israel. So one loaf for each tribe of Israel. And there was also a golden, there was also a goblet of wine, I should say, which spoke of the joy of the Lord that they had. Now, you move outside of that, and you come way out to the courtyard to a laver, okay? Something uh, that's full of water with which to wash the sacrifice and make them clean. And then right at the door over there, you would see straight opposite, at the end would be the altar of brass where they killed and sacrificed the animals where the blood would be shed. Okay, do you all get the, kind of a picture there? You're looking at it, you know, you're looking at what's there. I see the candles, I see the bread, I see the golden altar, I, I see the laver or the sea or whatever they called it at that time, and, and then the, the altar for the, okay, good. One time a year, the time was called the Day of Atonement, right? And that animal was slain at that altar, and its blood was brought in and was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat, that golden slab, that's what it's called. It was sprinkled onto the top of the mercy seat, and, 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 and the Israelite, in that sense, may come into the presence of God, and he stood there, the Israelite stood there, right, in front of the throne of God and king, because one, an animal had died instead of him, and its blood was sprinkled. And two, that blood was brought there by a representative, the high priest. So remember, you're saying the Israelites stood there, but yeah, in his representative, in his substitute, he could stand there before the throne. That's the idea. That's the picture. Now Moses saw all of that on the mountain. And when he saw it, he had to come back and he made the scale model. Now, read through at your leisures, again, chapter 4 of Revelation. In fact, you can kick in 5 there as well. And, but what you will see, I believe, immediately what John saw is what Moses saw. 
Only John now sees it in its total fulfillment. Moses saw it as a forecast. He saw it in picture form. He saw it as it would be. But now Christ has come. It is no longer in picture. It is reality. So you'll notice even John's coming into this. There, there are many parallels to the book of Exodus as we go through this. So, for example, you'll notice there to begin with, there is a door open in heaven. There's no Mount Sinai, but there is a door open in heaven. So there's a trumpet voice calling him through the door into the invisible half of the universe and there to see what the universe really is. If I'll just be honest, you will never understand the universe from the physical end. You have to go into the invisible, immaterial, the spiritual side of the universe in order to understand how the physical side works. If, 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 you, if you think that this physical realm that we're walking in is, is simply because of what we do. No, the spiritual realm dictates the physical realm, friend. What is happening around us, all that happens around, around us, good English, is, uh, you know, are the effects of the invisible realm onto the physical realm. The cause of those effects is the invisible half of the universe. And John was called out of the physical half of the universe to see the world of causes. In the invisible half of the universe, he, he's got to see now what causes the, the world history to be what it actually is. What is the cause behind, you know, what's going on? That's the whole book of Revelations to begin with. And, and understanding the causes behind the physical world mm, and what he saw was the tabernacle. Uh, the only way I know how to describe it is in cosmic size. In, in fact, he realized that in one scene, the entire universe is a cosmic tabernacle. So he came into the invisible half of the universe into the holy of holies and he stepped into the ultimate holy of holies that's the understanding so the first thing he said was "Ooh, behold a what throne he came into the holy of holies and he saw the ark of the covenant only he sees it in cosmic proportion and he says behold the throne of God. But then he said, right in front of that throne, there was something like a sea of glass. Now, I mean, in other words, you can't readily get to the throne because you have this great sea of glass that's separating you. That is the veil that separates man from the throne. And he says that right around the throne, there was these strange living creatures. I, I don't know. I think sometimes that's what I look like when I get up in the morning. What do you think? Uh, but, <laughs> sorry. But I, I just had that picture in my head and I couldn't get it out. But you know what I look like in the morning? Yeah, it's found in the book of Revelations. But that's another story. 
But you've got these strange living creatures, and what we're going to see in a little bit is that they are the cherubim. And so the real cherubim now, not the embroidered ones on a curtain out of, you know, that's, and that's made out of gold, but the real cherubim, John sees them surrounding the throne of God. He saw 24 elders on the thrones. That, that answer, as we shall prove in a moment, to the 12 loaves of showbread. The 12 loaves sh stood for the tribes of Israel, and the 24 stand for far higher Israel, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. He said, I saw seven spirits ever burning before the throne. And that was the seven-branched candlestick, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, okay? Giving you sort of an updated version of the fulfillment, the, the afterside of Christ. He walked into this, and he realizes that there was a tiny model on earth. He, he, you know, and, and that, that, that which he sees is the actual reality of that tiny model on earth. That's why, that, that, is, that is the way the whole universe works. And, and when we come to the lamb as it had been slain, there is no priest, for the priest is the lamb. And the lamb has shed its own blood. And, but it's alive. And he brings his own blood and he comes right up to the throne with his own blood and in him the whole church is there. Then beyond that there was the whole world, okay? And so what you get is the picture that at the very center, at the very center of the universe, there's this throne. And, 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 and there is the Spirit of God. There is the reality. The, the church is what it's all about. Beyond that, there is the world of mankind. Yeah, but let's take a look at some of these things. Let's, let's take a moment to walk through. So first of all, the throne. And, and it's a tremendous, I don't know about you, but I get a tremendous feeling of peace to know that this is the very first thing that John saw in the center of the universe, he says, oh, behold the throne. You remember what we said before about the church was being persecuted greatly, bitterly? It, it seemed from some viewpoints that the whole thing was pretty much a failure as far as the Christian onism. If you were a Christian, you were pretty well signing up for some kind of martyrdom, for some kind of death. You, you really had to have a martyr's mind. They, they would not have gotten very far back in those days. If you want joy, I mean, if, if, you, you know, if you want joy, if you want peace, if you want health and healing, come to Jesus. <laughs> that was not the message then. It was instead, if you want to be thrown to the lions, lose your job, lose house, well, come to Jesus. Well, it was a very different approach, but it was the real approach. Under the sense of persecution, you could lose any feeling that God is in control. 
right? We, we go through seasons and we wonder if God's still in control. But take what they were going through. It's, it's, it's again, it's very real. At the very center of the universe, God, friend, has it under control. There is a throne, and upon that throne is the king. At the very center of this universe, God has it all under control. So go back to uh, Domitian. Remember him, the emperor? And you remember him and spouting out, I am the Lord God, and everyone must worship me. No, says John, uh-uh, no. Behold, a throne far above the throne of Domitian, far above the wars, far above all that Rome will ever do. There is a throne, and God is ultimately in control. Now, we shall see in these two chapters that we are looking at the throne, at the throne, as far as the throne, it's mentioned 17 times. Well, that, that kind of gives me the impression that God wants me to understand that he is in control. Sovereign God. He rules the universe. God did not make a world and then wind it up and say, guess what, guys, I'll, I'll meet you in glory, uh, hopefully. <laughs> God is now active in his universe. He is now the present governing king. It says the one on the throne who sat on the throne is like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there is a rainbow coming out of the throne with lightning coming out from it. What does all that mean? A jasper stone is a crystal. And it's crystal clear. And it's a shining, radiant crystal. John says that I, when I looked at the throne, it was, it was just as, as if that whole throne was, was filled with flashing, radiant, brilliance, crystal, that that was simply the presence of God. That simple presence of God. He who said he is what? Light. The God who had appeared over the mercy seat in the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory. God is utter, pure crystal. It, it speaks of, and what that speaks of is absolute Holiness of God. Sardis is a fiery red, an angry red. John said, when I looked at it, when I looked, it was, it was the radiance of a crystal, but also mixed in that. When, when you look at it one way, it's a crystal. When I looked at it another way, it was a Sardis, a fiery red. He who is utter holiness, utter purity, he must out of necessity, at the same time, be anger against sin. I hope you're following what we're saying here. The rainbow. Uh, that just gives me great hope because if I were to look at the utter holiness of he who is crystal and take in the fiery, angry red of Sardis, I would say there's no hope for me, right? But around the throne, there's a rainbow. And you do remember when the first time the rainbow was mentioned in Scripture, right? When Noah stepped out of the ark 
And for the very first time in his life, he saw a raindrop. She live in our time. He can see raindrops, snowfall, all this stuff. But it had never rained in his lifetime. And that's a long time if you remember how old Noah was. Now, the sun was shining because there was, there was no cloud covering the sun on the raindrops. And then, you know, rainbow appears. It was the first time a human eye had ever seen a rainbow. And God said, that bow in the sky is the sign of what? My covenant. The rainbow from that day on. And, and again, even in other nations. For remember, every nation is descended from Noah. So every nation has the idea in the back of their head. You come across it in, in, a lot in histories of, of a lot of nations. We are speaking of that that, that word, loving kindness, where God is bound to act in love and kindness. And he has sealed it with a covenant, and around the throne, the throne that I would shy away from in fear or horror, but as I come to the throne, I see the covenant seal. God welcomes man. I can approach the one who is holy because he is the God of mercy and the God who has made covenant with man and bound himself to man even though man don't deserve it. You got the lightning. Let, let the echoes in my book keep coming. We're still on Mount Sinai in that sense. Do you remember that one of the characteristics of Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given was what? Lightning. It says that the whole mountain thundered and rocked and quaked, and there was lightning. The giving of the law was a fearsome, I think maybe even a horrific thing. But <laughs> it told man what? How wrong he was. Man didn't know what sin was until the Ten Commandments come along. And, and and, and what this does here is, is, is that it, 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 the lightning and thunder was a realistic backdrop for that. So John sees the ultimate throne. He sees the real throne of which that one is just a shadow. They kept the Ten Commandments inside the ark. Now he sees the ultimate throne and the flashes of lightning... They remind him that the God who gave the law is himself the lawgiver, and he who sits on the throne demands the absolute keeping of the law. Any infraction of it is sin. He is the one who is the fiery Sardis. John sees this awesome picture. Now remember, right here I'm going to inject this because it's important that we remember how we are looking at revelations. We are seeing revelations as a picture. Okay? I'm not overly concerned with details. I, I want to get the impression. And, and Vince, if you could just sort of readjust the receiver because I'm getting dropouts left and right up here. Uh, so, so what is it that John saw? What, what is it that John saw? Uh, as I want to get the impressions, uh, you know, realizing this is a picture... John saw 
the awful holiness of God. Now, I use the word very carefully. I, I do, because God, God is awe-inspiring. There is a, a very real sense that you can say that God is frightening. And, and in fact, if you have never really been frightened at the thought of God, I wonder whether you have really ever looked at God. When I see God in his holiness, the law of God that demands rightly and beautifully, there can be no infraction of it. And when I see that, when I see that God, because he is holy, must punish sin, that he, he does not punish sin by a choice that he makes, but because of who he is, the necessity of his nature. He's got to punish sin. This is God, the awful other, the one who punishes it. And then there's a rainbow thrown around the throne. And John realizes, hey, wait a minute, there's hope. There's a rainbow of covenants. The sea of glass was the reminder that because God is holy, he is separated. He is other than me. And, and yes, ladies, your husband is, is not God. Throw that out there, too. They are completely other than. Okay, look, God, he isn't a creature. He's the creator. And every time I come to God, I realize that he is other than myself. I began. He's the unbeginning one who began me. Just think about that, okay? So... When I think about that kind of, there's this huge distance. Creator, creation, beginning, unbeginning. God don't need me. God was self-sufficient before anything was made. Hello? God is totally self-sufficient in himself. I'm just a, a heap of needs, right? I mean, I need... I need God. I need air. I need water. I need you. I need a large pepperoni and sausage mushroom pizza right now. So, you know, so I come, the needy one, to the one who has no needs. The one who is totally dependent to the one who is totally independent. There is a sea of glass between us, a sea of holiness, a sea of other. And then you have the 24 elders. Who are the 24 elders that are sitting in the presence of such an awesome being? Well, we come to numbers here, and I, I want to underscore this. I, I, I'm not talking about the book of Numbers, by the way. Numbers in Revelations has absolutely nothing to do with arithmetic. How many are glad for that? Not my greatest strength, you know. But numbers in the book of Revelation are describing ideas, not figures and facts. Okay? They're describing ideas. It's referred to as the study of numerology. And I, I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't get into this very much because you can get weird in numerology and, and get some really crazy ideas. 
But just where we come to numbers that need explanation, what we're going to do is stop and do so. We're going to explain that. So you have 24 elders. What, what does that mean? Well, you come to the figure 24 and to an idea which is really basic throughout the entire scripture. That idea is the number 12. If, if you are a Bible reader, you will have picked up on that. You'll remember that there were 12 tribes of Israel and you had 12 apostles. That's a basic idea. Old Testament, New Testament, the number 12 in the Bible is an idea. So what does that tell me? How do you make 12? Well, 12 is, a, is made out of two numbers that you will, again, come across often in the scriptures. And the numbers are 3 and 4. 3 times 4 equals 12. So notice, and, and don't let me confuse you here, please, but we'll, we'll be coming up to it as 3 plus 4 equals 12. The number seven is another number that is, again, basic to the scriptures. Three and four. This time it's, it's multiplied. Three times four equals 12. What does three stand for? Three, the Trinity. God in his triunity. That's what three stands for. What does four stand for? It stands for the totality of the world, the four corners of the universe. That's what four stands for. God in Trinity, three, working in the totality of the world, four. So three times four equals God working his purpose out in the world. Do you grab that? Three times four, God working his purpose out in the world. Okay, stew on that for just a minute. Three times four equals 12. We're going to test you on that before you can get out of here. You, before you can walk out them doors, you have to know what three times four equals. When God was working the totality of his purpose in the Old Testament, you have the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was unfolding of God's purposes to man. I mean, you look at Israel, and you, you see the purposes of God. I mean, they represented God to the entire world. Now, I, I understand, in the New Testament, when God was working out his purposes, he did it, how? Through the 12 apostles. So the Bible often speaks in the New Testament that the church is built, how? On the foundation of the apostles, the 12 apostles. So all that we know of Christianity came through the teaching of the 12 apostles. Hello. 12. God at work in the world. That idea is often signified by the number 12. You have 24 elders. 12 plus 12 equals 26, correct? No, 24. The 12 of the Old Testament, the 12 of the New Testament, the 20, listen, very carefully. The 24 elders are a symbol of the church of all ages. The church of the Old Testament, the church of the New Testament, 
John says they are setting in the presence of God who, if seen without his covenant, mercy is, is an awful, frightening God. The 24 elders. Look, it, 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 it says... It, it's, it, it says that these elders are clothed in what? White garments. White throughout the book of Revelation consistently speaks of what? Righteousness. In fact, in Revelation 19.8, it does, it does speak specifically to a, a fine linen, but it actually states that the, that is the righteousness of the saints. Now, Jesus is depicted as wearing a white robe. And wherever Jesus is seen in this book, his description, you have the description of his white, of his clothes in white. So, therefore, these elders, the, the picture that represented the entire church, both Old and New Testament, can set in the presence of a holy God. The law says they got to die. But they live. They sat in his presence. The covenant mercy of God has given them his righteousness. They are seated. They're clothed in righteousness. They are seated in the presence of God in his righteousness. Notice they're seated. They're sitting down. I, I know we read that they fell down and worship, but, but notice that basically their position is, is that of being seated. I mean, that, that's a huge statement when you think about it because in the presence of such a God, one would expect them to be all groveling in the dust, so to speak, oh, mercy, but they're not. They're seated. Does that give you a few echoes? In Ephesians 2.6, where it says that we are what? Seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That we, through the covenant mercy of God, have not only been clothed in God's righteousness, but we have actually been brought into heaven itself. We now experience life in heavenly dimension. We are now no, 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 now. Not tomorrow. Not someday in the future. We are now seated in heavenly places. Can somebody say amen? That, that is what the Bible teaches. Heaven is future. Oh, yes. I, I, I believe that. Of course I do. But that is not the message of the Bible, friend. That is the PS of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that now, at this present time, the picture of Revelation tells me that we are now seated in the heavenly places. You're seated. Seated. I mean, you are not swelled out on your face. You are seated. That means, friend, that you have some rights with this God. To be seated in that presence, you got to be somebody. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, I'm a somebody. Because what it brings back, <laughs> some of you are arguing already. I remember in Romans where it says, remember in eight chapters, chapter 8, verse 17, it says that we are what? Heirs of God. 
joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that when I say that you are part of, you are part of the 24 elders? Yes, you are. Would you understand me if I, if I, when, when I say that? Because you, you are part of the 24 elders, the 24. You see, it, the 24 is not really the 24, is it? It is a picture. It is a symbol of you plus all the other Christians in the world, plus all the other Christians that have ever been, plus all the believing Israelites that ever were. It's a symbol. It's a picture. It's the church of all ages. Does that make sense? You are a part of the 24. And so you and I are, are, are on, the, on the inside of us, in our spirits, we are seated in the heavens. We have the righteousness of God because of Jesus Christ and his covenant mercy. And we are seated because we are heirs of God, joint heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. I get excited. This is now. No, 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 no. I don't feel that way. Well, thank goodness we don't live by our feelings. We live by faith. It says we have crowns on our head. How many went to Burger King before you came here, huh? It, it says that we have crowns on our head, and we are going to come to that during this book of Revelation. So I'll, I'll get to that a little bit more later. But the true rulers of the universe under the only ruler of the universe is the church. In fact, do you get that picture? You're a ruler under the ruler of the universe. And, and, and this book is going to tell me that the whole of history, all, all of time, can only be explained in terms of the church. We are the final and, the, and, the, and, and true rulers of this world, which is a huge statement, which would really kind of take this entire course to really understand it. But I hope you're getting a picture here. Do, do you really understand when I say we think in pictures? Because sometimes we're looking for the very specific... No, 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 no. Uh, I hope you don't have a problem when I say we are not really thinking of 24 elders, okay? It, it's only a picture. It is the reality that we are searching for underneath the picture that we're being shown. It, it says there were these strange living creatures that surrounded the throne. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I get these thoughts in my head. There, okay, let me say that again. Strange living creatures surrounding the throne. We call them grandchildren, but that's another story. <laughs> now, please understand, and the reason I prefaced what I said is that I don't want to get into great detail with them. I know that they were cherubim because Ezekiel in chapter 1 through chapter 10 explains that to me. You, you can read it when you want. It has those weird, strange visions that are, are another Bible study all themselves. But there we find the identification of these strange creatures. And, and they are called what? Cherubim. The little we know about the cherubim tells us that they are the highest order of angel, that they are the ones who bring to pass among men the purposes of God. 
we'll talk a lot more about that later, but you remember back in the book of Genesis, for example, when man fell, he was expelled from the Garden of Eden. It, it says there that the cherubim with the sword that was always turning kept or guarded the way to the tree of life. Remember that? Okay, that tells me right there what the cherubim are doing. They are keeping the way. It, it was not so much to keep Adam out, of, 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 out from the tree of life. The idea is that they were they're guaranteeing that the way to the tree of life will be kept so that one day man will be able to go to the tree of life. I hope you follow that because that's a paradigm shift for a lot of people. We just keep thinking it's to keep Adam out. No, it's to guard the way so that man will be able to come to go to the tree of life. That is why they were on the veil of the tabernacle. They were the guarantee. God says that among men, the cherubim were working, his, were working out his purposes and bringing his will to pass. The cherubim were the living guarantee that one day man would be able to get back inside the veil and right there at the throne of God partake of the tree of life. It, it, oh, I love a study on the tree of life. That's for another time because you'll find it in your, in your, in your revelation. But, but it, it's very fitting that at this final vision that explains history, we're surrounded by cherubim. They have guaranteed that man can enter the presence of God. And when nations have risen and nations have fallen, According to the scripture behind the physical rising and, and, and the falling of nations, the angelic beings have been at work bringing to pass God's will on earth. Guaranteeing that one day man will be able to enter to the tree of life. I don't know. I'm just, I keep side thoughts here. Do me a favor. Don't fear Putin. Don't fear Biden. Don't fear uh, economics. Don't fear disease more than you fear God. That's the misproportion the enemy wants to keep you out. Well, let me understand. Let, let me, I'll just, <clears throat> okay, that's chapter four. That's actually where I'm going to stop. Why? Because I have all of chapter 5 right here to do. And I want to do it really, really, really bad. But we'll get to that next week. We'll cover all of chapter 5. And then we're going to get into the third vision. And that's where we're going to deal with the six seals, the 144,000. Remember, we're not dealing with actual numbers. These are pictures, right? Okay, we'll get to that next time. But let me, let me just uh, recapitulate. What did he say? Is that Christian? Recapitulation. It just simply means I'm going to repeat what I just said. So that's another 45 minutes added on to right now. Now, what I want to say is, you know what? This book, remember who it's written to? These people are dying. These people are losing everything. And you would, you would begin to doubt, and your hope would flee, and then they get this. And, and, you know, the Romans, especially the guards and the soldiers, they look at this book and they go, yeah, they're crazy. 
because they don't understand it. You have to be a believer to understand it. They had the Old Testament. They knew what was in there. And as they read through this, they, they begin to see the, the echoes and they begin to get excited because not up to that point, you're, you're fearing Domitian. You're fearing what he'll do and what will happen and so forth. You, you, you're looking at the end of your life. You're looking at things as over. You don't... You, We're, they're looking at their 401ks crashing. They're, they're looking at their money running out because what they did have, they're spending on Twinkies. Twinkies, I don't know where it came up with it, but you know what I'm saying as far as going, yes, it, yeah, go down, go up, go down, go up. We got problems left and right to try and make ends meet. Things are happening all over the place. And we can fear what's right in front of us. John says, in the middle of this universe, he's big and mighty. He is in control. And around him, you are. You are seated in heavenly places. Oh, yeah. And we're going to talk about things, you know, that are going on. And we'll talk about the saints crying out, you know, the blood and, the, you know, you know, can't think of the word, but, you know, help us. Some, somebody's got to pay here. Some's, and we're going to talk about all that stuff and what's happening. I get excited about it because this is not, oh, man, you're there. Heaven is, 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 is it's not about, it's now. Well, I don't feel like it. Well, again, thank goodness you don't live by your feelings. Emotionally, it's very easy to get dragged down. And we do, because we is human. But that's why he wrote to us to remind us so that we will live, because we're clothed in his righteousness, and we're seated in heavenly places with him, in him, by him. We're a part of the family. We're knit together, we're joined together, we're abiding in him, he and us, and so forth. We're in the family. Okay, I'll stop. I don't want to. I want to celebrate my God. Hey, you know what? I'm still going through. Do you think everything's all good and fancy and nice in my life? Oh, heavens. I still have to cook every night. I'm just kidding. I'm going to get in trouble for that. Hey, we got USDT still together in heaven. Oh, not too bad. But and anyways... I'm happy in Christ. I get down. You know, I'm listening to the people that are going through what hell they're going through in, in Florida right now. I, I can't even begin to imagine. I mean, literally, I can't begin to imagine. You know, I've lived through you know, some storms, some tropical storms, and so forth and so on, and, and, and floods and lost everything. And, but I can't imagine what they're going through. There's the thing in the same universe that I don't I, I, I know better than to, to stack all my chips on this one moment in time because my God is still in control and I know where he has placed me and where I live I am 
24. I know I don't look it, but I'm one of the 24. Would you stand with me? Keep thinking of that old hymn. <coughs> no, I'm not going to sing it. You're okay. But the old hymn, remember it? I think it was page 214 in our old hymnals. It's called Victory in Jesus. My Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew him. And all my he plunged me, I like that, to victory. Beneath his Oh, Jesus, thank you. You are grace sufficient. Your goodness beyond restraint. What you have done for us and what you have shown us. Bless, I pray. Guide and direct. Bless them in their coming ins and their going outs. And in all their handcomes to you. Allow them to continue to chew and taste and see the Lord's love. Continue to surround them and love on them. Heal them. Strengthen them. Protect them. Keep them safe. Raise them up. Use them. Anoint them. Favor them. Let God's name be upon them. In Jesus' name. And everybody said...